We're going to turn over to chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs. What we're seeing here is three chapters that really represent a continuum of a discussion. And the discussion is one that is kind of hard to bring. Uh, We live in times that are very graphic about so many things, CRT, and then they're getting into all the terrible things uh, being taught to our children in schools. Uh, You can imagine perhaps how much more awkward it was for Solomon to talk about these things to his sons, uh, the strange woman, you know, and all of those things. We saw in chapter 7 that there was a a dichotomy that he drew that was, to my sensibilities, a little unusual. He didn't say, watch out for the strange woman and go for your wife. He said that was part of it, but he said, really, the real ticket here is going to be following God's wisdom, having a higher view of everything, because nothing on this earth is eternal. But what is eternal is that which you're seeking when you are seeking him. And so what we're seeing, again, is he's talked to us in the first chapter about the seductress. But even in the first few verses, he lays out that we need to chase the Torah. We need to chase the mitzvah, okay, which is the commandments and and the law. And we need to let that be the the beauty around our necks, the thing that keeps us tethered. And then he only uses a few verses there. Then he moves into uh, the discussion about how dangerous it can be out there for the young man getting started in life. Chapter 8 kind of picked up the same theme, but it amplified uh, wisdom personified. We saw wisdom put out there as crying in the streets and wisdom as one who has only good things in store for the sons of men. And it actually goes into, uh, dovetails into a personification or an identification with Jesus Christ himself. He that findeth me, wisdom says, findeth life. And you have a lot of things like uh, that that are throughout the uh, passage. And as I dove into that, because I never had done that before, I'd already felt like Jesus was all over those pages or all over those verses. But it was not until that last week when we were together that I was able to delve into what others had said who had gone before. And many of them began with, Wisdom being Jesus, okay? And so I was not off on left field or right field, but to make sure, I made sure I read a lot and saw a lot of other people's views. And he's seen all through the picture and all through the pages and all through the uh, lines that are there. So when we come to chapter 9, we're seeing that wisdom has been made our righteousness. And in chapter 8, it's told to us this, but now he really comes to a summation of chapter 7 and 8. The Bible says in verse 1, Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewed out her her seven pillars. She hath killed her beast. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. She hath sent forth her maidens, and she crieth upon the highest places of the city. And what you're seeing here now is, again, a summation of what he said before. He's saying she's out there. She's crying for people to come in. She stands in the broad light of day saying, here I am. I'm ready for you. I've got all things prepared. And here he says now that she has prepared her house and built it. Now, very interesting. There, It says there are seven pillars in this house. So when it says she's built it, she's hewn it. She's killed the beast, she's mingled her wine, she's furnished uh, her table, she sent forth her maidens, and she crieth upon the high... That's seven, okay? So she's taken care of everything. She has made everything ready for anyone who would come to her. It is a perfect and a permanent situation she has set up. Now, why that's significant is because we are in a veritable minefield down here. Any given day, you could blow yourself up. She has provided for us everything we need to get from here to home. However, man's ways are very prone to wander. The eyes of man never satisfied. The the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. There can be all kinds of, of opportunities to stumble and falter. So what I want to suggest to you as we delve into this passage a little bit more deliberately is he's summing it up by telling us there are two paths a person can go by, a man can go by specifically, 
And that is he can either be driven by purpose or he can be driven by pleasure. And that is a very powerful dichotomy. Because when a man has purpose and intentionality, he can set his jaw and he can set his gaze. Men are very, very good at being laser-focused on things. The problem is, is that this world is a disappointment on so many levels that if you do not have yourself tethered into God himself, you're going to be disappointed. It'll be days where you'll want to just dive into something that is reckless and foolish and that can destroy you. And that only takes a moment. We see it with uh, David, our hero in the Old Testament. Here he was doing so much. And as long as he had the purpose of providing for his men and being safe and running from Saul and maintaining his integrity and not trying to assert himself. He was always focused on what was important, and that was just being a blessing, being a humble servant, being somebody who's tethered to God. But the moment that he got up on top of the heap, he he went, he went, he went for a while, but then he sent and he sent, and eventually he fell. only took one day, one episode, one moment, and he uh, he was undone in many ways. In fact, he had the sentence of death in himself, and he even was willing for that. But Nathan said, nevertheless, the Lord has put away your sin. And he pens the words, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. And we revel in the truth, but we really grieve over the reality, don't we? We we can't hardly take it. You know, it's, it's like he was our hero. He was the best of the best. He was a man after God's own heart in a way unlike anybody else. So we can say with a... Uh, Eloquence, (laughs) let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls, right? And so pleasure is a thing because sometimes what pleasure does is pleasure, uh, it kind of gets our mind off the pain and life is filled with pain, disappointment. Maybe we wished we would have been bigger, more or done better or whatever, but there's always that lurking feeling uh, that somehow things could have been better. And I think that's a, a problem for most people. We go through life and we think, well, if I'd only started this way, done this, took that turn at this point, done something different, uh, there's a regret that sometimes uh, clouds our day-to-day. So pleasure or purpose, what's it going to be? Well, wisdom offers a place where a man can live. He can live from here to home with wisdom. And what we see in those depictions that are given in the first three uh, verses is wisdom offers a place of permanence and a place of perfections. And it's seen in those seven pillars. You can't read these words without not just remembering chapter eight, where it brings us to Jesus as being the embodiment of wisdom, him being the word that spoke all things into existence, that answers the philosophers of the Greeks. You know, if we just had one word, Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word, but he's the emphasis. Everything he put into, per, into place, everything he, he cast into existence, it continues, it resounds. Just like you see the, 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 the seasons in their courses. We see the perfections of God in all of creation, but also every word. 66 books, they all resonate. And the more you go in there, the more you realize it's okay here. Okay? It's okay here. He knows it's broken. He knows it's bad. But he has sent forth his spirit. He has given us testimonies of people who've struggled as we have. And he has shown us that there's a way through. So what he does in chapter 8 is shows us wisdom becomes a, an extension of who he is. Everything about him is bound up in that wisdom. And when he comes to chapter uh, 9, he takes uh, Solomon, turns it a little bit on a phrase, because you can't help but read this and think about the women in our lives. He doesn't really say, oh, daughters, come near. He never says that. He speaks to men. You know, when, he's, when Jesus fed the 5,000, we know it was 5,000 men. Besides women and children, God has a relationship. The man was made uh, to be under God, the wife under the man. And so when you see this, you see him talking about a wife in many ways, because listen, this is almost close to what he says in chapter 14. He says, every wise woman buildeth her house. So you begin to see there's some kind of overlay. If you read what she's done, hewn this and 
prepared that and the table is furnished and all these things, you can begin to see almost something that a wife could take and say, I can do that. If you read uh, Proverbs chapter 31, most women read that and they're thinking, man, she must be exhausted. She's up first thing in the morning. She goes down while it's at night. She's sewing. She's, you know, hand to the distaff. She's giving a portion to her maiden. She's clothing her family. She's buying a field. She's, oh, she's overwhelmed. But what really were the two hangers were is that her husband sits in the gates and he, her husband fully, his heart's fully trusts in her. And she will do him good and not evil. And there's a connective I'm feeling as I'm pondering this passage. As I see in chapter 14, it says, Wisdom buildeth her house. Interestingly enough, it doesn't stop there. It says, But the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. So a wife has a lot of power with regard to the experience that they will have on this earth with their husbands and so forth. So when it says wisdom has built in her home, that's what it says about the wife. It says every wise woman buildeth her house. Now, this is going to be kind of a, it's interesting because you don't have a whole lot of opportunity to choose as a woman way back when. Women got married very young, and the man usually was old enough to be established, and then there was an experience. But I want to make that connection at the outset. Because what he's doing here is, though he's talking about wisdom, he again is talking about the difference between pleasure and purpose. But look on down at the end of the chapter where it says in verse 13, a foolish woman is clamorous. So there is something there to take with us. We have to kind of see between the lines that God is letting us know that there's something more here than meets the eye. God said in the beginning when man was created, he said it is not good that the man dwell alone. That was not good. And yet he says at the end of of the book of Proverbs, he says, who can find a virtuous woman? He says over in Ecclesiastes, he says a thousand men have I, a thousand, a man out of a thousand have I found, but a, one, a woman among all of these have I not found. What was he trying to tell us? Well, I've tried to drill into this reality, and I think that the reality is, is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Men will defer. We're in trouble today because Christianity, Christians, women and men, will defer to the lost and to people who are really coming into our world and we're thinking, how do we behave? How do we, how do we go forward? Why is it that the, the, the nations were as they were? You recall that when Israel was at its apogee in chapter 3 of the book of Isaiah, it says, as for my people, children are their oppressors and the women rule over them. Why? Because we defer. We want to defer. So a good woman has to be a woman who says, I get that. I appreciate that. I love that about you. But, <laughs> you know, we got to stay focused here. And wisdom will build her house rather than tear it down, if that makes sense. Very difficult, but very important to know. She has builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. She has killed her beasts. You know, when when Abraham was visited by God and the two angels before Sodom and Gomorrah was taken down, he sent word, kills, you know, this animal and make food. And, you know, it's like the wife was... Very, very much engaged in the background, but she made everything good for Abraham that day. She had killed her beast. She hath mingled her wine. And the word mingled is an interesting word. It doesn't mean that, uh, that, that she's making it harsh <laughs> and hard liquor. No, it's the idea of mingling it with, with uh, some sort of um, herbs or spices, but also mingling it with water. In other words, they had the grapes, they had the paste, they had all of that, and she was there making sure that it was going to be used in just the proper way. In fact, uh, one has written it this way, the wine was mingled with spices or water, in essence prepared for proper consumption, because that's what she did. And you know, wine, as it were, coming from the grapevine, the grapes coming out of the land of Canaan when they went there, that was the picture of, man, this is a flourishing place. This is a prosperous land God's brought us to. So having those, that mingled wine was to have just the right proper 
done thing here, done everything done right, and uh, not to tarry long, but rather to enjoy uh, the bounty that God has given us. And it says she has furnished her table. I mean, do you see the hands of a female there? I mean, what's he saying? He's saying this is all of the things that make life tolerable. These are the things. And he says she has sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. Now, there's a way to understand that. Some people see where it says she has sent forth her maidens. It's that they're sent forth to go tell people to come in. But it doesn't say that in the original. The idea is she crieth. She's done something for her maidens. But then she personally, as wisdom personified, crieth in the streets to the simple one. When you see that, you understand that there are certain ways you could read it. Some people think, well, they sent, he sent, uh, she sent, or wisdom sent her maidens. But I would suggest when I read other passages in Proverbs and other places in the wisdom literature uh, and in the Psalms, I, I, I see some things. I see Proverbs 31, verse 15. It says, she rises while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. So she's making provision for other people around her. In one sense. So she sends forth her maidens. And so that's one verse. Verse 27 of chapter 27 in Proverbs, it says, And thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of thy maidens. Okay, so there's something about providing beyond her own personal investment. She's providing for people that matter to her. Also, there's a sense of propriety that we see provided by women to other women. Song of Solomon uh, three verses, it says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, her girlfriends, don't awake love before it's time. Don't awaken love before it's time. You need to be chaste, you need to be pure, and your marriage and your future will depend upon uh, that concept of propriety. So again, she gives, uh, she, she sends forth maidens with a sense of truth that she herself has passed on to them. Uh, we know in Titus it says, let the older women teach the younger women, right? And there's certain things to be said there. But I see that. And I also see another passage which is uh, very powerful in my mind, especially these days. Uh, uh, Helen Burford has passed away, so that kind of brings this into my, my uh, mind. It says in Psalm forty-five, fourteen, she shall be brought unto the king. <laughs> I think of Helen. She shall be brought unto the king. And I had a chance to sit down with the family today, and those girls couldn't say enough. Kurt couldn't say enough. It was just how wonderful and how much she just really was a blessing to them throughout their lives. Just a godly, sweet lady, and how they had been poured into, and so forth. But it says, she shall be brought un unto the king in raiment of needlework. Listen to this. The virgins, her companions, that follow her, shall be brought unto thee, unto the king as well. In other words, also she has this uh, portions that she gives to others, propriety that she taught others, but also positions in the family of God because she's been fruitful. And I think that's something to be powerfully thought about because wisdom did that. She sent forth her maidens. She sent them on. She's willing to let them go because she knows they're good. It's like when kids are coming to the place where they grow to a point and you let them go. You know, they, they call it uh, leaving the nest or whatever. Um, well, the, un, the reality is, is that you feel like you've been flying a kite all those years and now the kite's being, the string's being cut. You're, it's like bowling. People are trying to get that ball to go a certain way, moving their hips out and head and, oh, get back over there. That's kind of how we feel. Well, she's not like that. She's built into others. Wisdom has built into others. Every generation has had the same option. We can take wisdom or we can take pleasure. Those are your choices. So many people have gone for pleasure, and it's not just carnal pleasure. It can also be pleasure in everything other than God, everything earthly, everything uh, this world has. It can be power. It can be carnality. It can be uh, maybe success, status. You know, look at the devil to see what it can be. He was the... Uh, the highest of the high among the in status. So he was the covering cherub, right? He had wisdom. He had talent. He had beauty. You know, any of those things could be amplified and be drawn down on as something to fulfill us. But all those things are fleeting. No, she sent forth her maidens. 
But then also she herself personally crieth in the streets in the highest places of the city. Verse 4 says, Whoso is simple, and this is her words, this is what she's saying, Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I mingled. All of that is what wisdom asks you for. He, she appeals to you. God, Jesus, he appeals to us. He's the way. He's the one who can satisfy you. He says, truly, my flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He says, I am the one that can satisfy you. He brings it down to a tangible way when he looks at the family and he says, look, there's a dynamic here that if you have a love affair, have it with wisdom. And there's so much to be found in the home. We talk about heaven a little, that home is supposed to be a little touch of heaven on, on earth. Uh, you know, we, we had a chance to have that. That's up to us. I remember one Bible teacher years ago used to amplify the concept of women have that opportunity to create an air of that heavenly uh, aroma in their homes. When a husband comes home, the house can be in order and the music can be calming and encouraging. And it doesn't have to be that, but it's just the intentionality of things in order and in peace and right and something of calmness. And there's all kinds of little hints people have given. You know, they've said, given the husband half an hour to unwind and end this, or maybe she, he could give her half an hour before he goes and shower. Whatever, you can do all the things you got to do. But we work on that to create sort of a balance down here because wisdom offers that for us. My problem here for you tonight is I'm trying to show you two sides of this, but you cannot miss the fact a house, furnishings, and all of that. But it's talking about wisdom, okay? That's what it's talking about. But also a woman who doesn't ever get anything in the book of Proverbs that is uh, lengthy in its anticipations, okay? In what it's, it's saying directly to the woman, you don't really get there until the last chapter. The mule's mother tells him it's not for kings, and she's really building into her son. And then you've got the virtuous woman. But what we have right here is a little bit of a, a look behind the curtain of what's really important as well, because it says she is appealing to the simple one. Uh, she wants them to know anyone who wanteth or lacketh understanding. She says to him, come and eat here. I look at that almost like... Um, a marriage situation, except that women never had the chance to choose. <laughs> and so in my ponderings, I came across a passage that does kind of relate to that. And it's in 2 Corinthians, uh, your 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, where the Bible talks about that a woman, uh, if she's married and her husband's passed, she can marry whom she will now. She's free. Only in the Lord, okay? But she never had the choice the first time. Now she's got a choice, only marry in the Lord. And if a girl is coming to a marriageable age, she could take these verses and say, you know what I want? I want a guy that I can love, that I can build into and help him and be his helper. And we'll be on the same page. And somehow we will make this life worth living a little bit more deliberately. In fact, um, I'm not sure which one to put it under, which verse I put it under. But as I say, verse seven, uh, verse four, it says, Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mingled. Forsake the foolish and live. Go in the way of understanding. And this is where this is an appeal of wisdom. But a woman's heart can also tether herself to this kind of an, a desire as well. Um, let me see if I can pull some of these things up for you. Verse, uh, verse 4 says, whoso is simple. The word simple literally has the idea of naivety. Do you know all men are born naive? <laughs> okay. And women are born naive too, but men are the ones who have to take the leadership. So it's really important for them to get it right because they're supposed to be sound, sober, grounded. But wisdom is the way through which you can get to the place where you have sobriety. Have groundedness, gravity, which is what gravity means. It means to be grounded. It says, and anyone who lacketh understanding, we all do that. We have, a, we have this vortex through which we look as being born sinners, right? 
the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, we can't trust ourselves. Even Paul says, man, I'm, I'm trying with all I got in me. And he says, yet I've got a battle going on in my bosom. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Where are you going to get it? You're not going to get it from your wife, but a wife can be a helper to you getting it if you have a desire for wisdom and understanding. Verse 5 says, come and eat. Come eat of my bread. When you think of this and you put Jesus into the mix, where did he say things like that? He says, whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will liken him to a man who built his house on a rock. Suddenly you got some stability. We see Jesus also saying, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. So come, come. I've got a furnished table. We see in chapter 6 of of John's gospel as well, it says, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So when she says, come, when, when wisdom says, come and eat and drink, this is very, very close to what Jesus is asking us to do. And everything we do that is good in this earth is a reflection of what is really real in eternity. See, all of these things down here are shadows. They're not eternal. In fact, we're going to have a marriage supper one day. And that's going to be real food. <laughs> okay. And we can appreciate the words real right now because the world is full of GMO, this and everything else. So we don't even know what we're, real food is so much uh, as maybe we did when we were younger. But it says, forsake the foolish. Actually, interesting thing about verse 6 is it says, forsake the foolish. And other translations have picked up on this. New King James says it this way. It says, forsake foolishness. Do you have to do that? Yeah, somewhere you have to choose. I'm not going to be foolish. We look at our little grandchildren now with new eyes. You know, when you're a kid yourself, raising kids, you don't know what's going on. But you see these grandchildren, and there's foolishness bound. They're thinking about it. Am I going to come to mom and grandma or whatever, or am I not? They're choosing to choose something. They're going to choose foolishness. They're going to choose to be obedient. And sometimes they'll choose one way and sometimes they'll choose another. But he's saying to you and me as men in the room, he's saying, choose to walk away. He says, you know, leave off or forsake foolishness and live. And that's what is promised. He that findeth me findeth life. And he says, you can live. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He that findeth me findeth life. Uh, The Bible says, this is life that they may know you in chapter 17 of John's gospel. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's life. Eternal life begins the moment you get saved. <laughs> it's not when you die. I remember thinking that way. Never really thought about it much. But if somebody had oppressed me early on, I'd say, well, I guess when I die, I get eternal life. No, you got it the moment you got saved. I have pictures that I put out during Easter with all my grandkids there. They're seeing my, you know, my, what's it, my metamorphosis, you know, as a little kid. You know, hair all combed and had a little suit on. And then as I got into my teens for a couple of minutes there, I was long hair and dead faced one day. Nice guy, long hair. Then there was this dead look on my face, you know. And then the next thing you know, I'm right with the Lord and got my hair cut and I'm smiling. It doesn't have anything to do with the long hair. I'm just saying my metamorphosis was apparent. Got a chance to share my testimony with him just a little bit. But the point is, is that somewhere along the line, we have to recognize that when we find Jesus, there's a light that's put in our eyes. He lights us. (laughs) And he says, no man lighteth. Lighteth the lampstand and puts it under a bushel, does he? He says he puts it up on a candlestick or puts a city on a hill. You know, he says, it can't be hid. God wants us to let our light shine. He that, the Bible says in verse 7, he that reproveth the scorner. Now, this is interesting because, you know, forsake the foolish or foolishness and live. Go in the way of understanding. Very important. Very important. And these are things that she's calling in wisdom's personification. She's calling men to do this. But then it sounds like it's almost out of place when it says in verse 7, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. He that rebuketh a wicked man getteth to himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. I honestly believe what we're seeing here. And let's go to verse 9 because it's part of it. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. These are interesting sidebars, almost parenthetical, as if a woman was reading this and saying, how can I help my husband be that guy? And her thought might be, I'm going to teach him. 
When I was a kid, we would be in school, and sometimes the teacher would literally not pick little, little, uh, little Samantha because they wanted you know, Samuel over here to get the answer. And it was partly because they knew that the men had to be men. And though men and women could be taught together, sometimes women could pick things up a little quicker because they grew up earlier. They didn't want the boy to be demoralized, and they were careful. And I remember thinking sometimes in certain sections of my life how the girls were really smart, which was kind of intimidating because they were pretty and smart too. (laughs) So that made it harder. And so here I am thinking, what in the world is this all about? But the generations before knew that the country's strength came from its men. And so you built the men and you taught the women to help the men. And that's weird now to even say out loud. In many sectors. So I suggest to you that what we're seeing here is that he's teaching even the women inadvertently some truths about bringing a man along, being a helper. It says, he that reproveth a scorner getteth getteth to himself shame. You say, yeah, but it says he that. There is no gender in the passage. There is no gender mentioned. It just says, reprove a scorner and you get a You'll get, he'll hate you. Okay. Let me give you a couple places, the other translations. Uh, the literal translation, Young's literal translation says, the instructor of a scorner is receiving for it shame. <laughs> so if a woman takes this personification too personally, she might think, well, I'm going to teach him a thing or two, and then that could be a problem because he might get angry and hate her. You know, when Solomon says what? He says, it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling and a contentious woman. There's like three different places he uses that metaphor in different ways. And a man will leave. He will go to the corner. He'll go to his garage. He'll be whatever if things are not what they should be, if they're not balanced in the way that God would have it be. It says, he that reproveth the scorner, uh, and, and again, let me give you another one of the verses that said it in a different way. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible says it this way, the one who corrects a mocker will bring abuse on himself. The one who rebukes the wicked will get hurt. Uh, the English Standard Version says it this way, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who uh, reproves a wicked man incurs injury. And then in the New American Standard Version Bible, which got the number 20 after it, so they must have updated it, uh, the New American Standard says it this way, one who corrects, one who corrects a scoffer gets himself, uh, gets dishonor uh, for himself. And again, they went with the male uh, personification. And one who rebukes a wicked person gets insults for himself. So what I'm trying to show you is, is that the, the Hebrew is a very wooden language. And the way it's being set in here almost out of, like, out of order. It's like you're thinking, how did, well, how did we turn that corner? What's that got to do? Because on the, on the horizontal level, if women are to be helpers and there's a, choice she can make. She's looking for the right kind of guy, one who's maybe naive but doesn't want to be naive, maybe that lacks understanding but doesn't want to lack in its understanding. Now she might have a choice, and when she makes the choice and she finds him not to be perfectly, you know, wise, (laughs) she might tend to want to force that. And he says, don't do that. He says, be very careful about doing that. And this is where it says he or they that reprove a scorner will get to themselves shame. Think about that. It fits now, doesn't it? If a woman tries to make a man who is a scoffer, like let's she, she made him, married a guy that got saved afterwards even, and she wants to be wise. She might think, I'm going to help him be wise. And he reacts, bris- he bristles. You know, it's hard for men to have a woman who's smarter than they are. They even tell you that in, in counseling, if a woman is more educated than a man, that the marriage has a little less opportunity to thrive. In fact, many times it can break down a little more. If she makes more money than he does, it can be hard. It's just a thing. Men want to be men. We had one guy and a gal who years ago, who they were married, and the gal was just spectacular. Everything she did prospered. She was super, she started her own business, making money. He wanted to be a farmer. And when we got down to the nut of it, I said to her, you know, you might want to really consider how he feels about that. (laughs) He would sit on the couch and do nothing. 
And he wasn't lazy. He was a big, brawling guy. He wanted to go work the field. But he was demoralized. Their marriage broke down because she wouldn't adjust. And what ended up happening was, even though their marriage broke down, they'd spend long hours talking on the phone because they loved each other. But he could, he could not thrive with her being so, so successful in all of her way. It's a very powerful and, let's say, very delicate balance that a woman has to try to figure out how to navigate in some of these cases. So if you reprove a scorner, somebody who's kind of mocking, because maybe he's feeling a little bit, you know, sometimes, you know, when little boys and little girls are playing, the boy might hit the girl. <laughs> and it doesn't mean he doesn't like her. It means he does. <laughs> Why are you doing that? Oh, it's crazy stuff. Well, it says, um, and he that rebuketh a wicked man, and that's a criminal even, it says, gets himself a blot. Uh, blot. So sometimes a woman can be tethered to somebody that is, Maybe difficult. Sometimes it's not just difficult. They're evil. They got saved after the fact, and now they've got to figure out how to, how to navigate. So he says in, in a little bit more of a corrective way how to do it. In verse 8, it says, reprove not a scorner. Don't even do that. And the word reprove actually has the idea of uh, to, pro- to prove, to decide, to judge, to rebuke, rebuke, to correct. And that's a huge deal because correcting is hard for any of us, right? Um, I know I've worked with guys where if a guy has something he's working on and he's having a hard time with it, and I'll go up and say, maybe you might want to they'll just walk away. They'll, <laughs> I've had them say, just walk away. I don't want it. And then sometimes they'll say, hey, what do you think I have to do here? They're there now. <laughs> a man doesn't sometimes want uh, correction until he wants it. He wants some input until he asks for it. Kind of an interesting thing that uh, some of our books are writing about these days. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus and all that. They, that's got that little thought in there. Uh, but it says, reprove not a scorner, or, uh, or, lest, or lest he hate you. Um, and then it says, so don't do that. And it says, rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. And again, rebuke, is that meaning maybe they can get in there and tell him how it is? Give me, let me give you another translation. This is the Bible in basic English here. It says, do not say sharp words to a man of pride, which... All men are proud, okay, especially in front of their wives. They want to be capable and so forth. So do not say sharp words to a man of pride or he will hate you for it. It says make them clear to a wise. Make your words clear to a wise man and you will be dear to him. In other words, make things clear. Interesting. Uh, help him to know. Uh, 1 Corinthians is where I was telling you about chapter 7, verse 39. It says the wife is bound to her by the law, as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. So for the first time, she's at a place where maybe she can choose. So that's not the average normal thing in the past, but there were places where it was true. In our generation, a woman has a lot of power to choose, and uh, therefore they have to be taking some of these words to, to heart. Verse 9 says, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Now, there's some verbiage here that is a little bit cryptic as well. First of all, in Young's literal translation, this verse is translated, give to the wise, give to the wise, and he will be wiser, and he is wiser still. In other words, give deference, give love, give submission. It helps him realize. It's sort of like this. If you expect the best from somebody, you're going to get more than you bargained for because they're, they're going to try. They're really going to try. So give to a wise person. If a man's wise, give to him. Give to him what? The word instructions in the italics. That means it's not in there. Don't give him instruction. Just give to him. I mean, prepare the table, kill the beast, do all these things. Hard to do, but uh, the woman's role is very difficult to uh, execute sometimes. It says, give to a wise to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. And when it says, teach, <laughs> that's an interesting word. Teach a just man. Is a wife's role to teach a just man? Well, the Greek word, or I'm sorry, the Hebrew word here is not teach. It's the word no. It's the word no. It kind of harkens to those first view words where the Bible says that... Um, that God doth know, back in Genesis, he doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open, right? 
he, it says that um, Adam knew his wife, Eve, remember? It's an intimate knowledge. Know him. It reminds me of Titus chapter 2, where the Bible says that wives are to love their husbands. It's the only place it's said, love your husband, love your children. It doesn't mean love them. It means like them. <laughs> it just means like them. It's phileo. It's not agape. It means to like your husband, like your children, because a woman can get bitter or hurt and uh, overwhelmed by the burdens of being a mom and a, a wife. It's, it's a lot. It's always give, give, give. And that's why Titus tells us that they need to like them. So when I read this verse and I see what the literal translation comes down with, again, let me read it. Give to the wise and he is wiser still. Make known to the righteous and he increaseth learning. And when I say no, it doesn't mean teach. Just work with that. Yada is the Hebrew word. It means know your husband. Know a man who is just intimately. Be, 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 be his companion, and he will increase in learning. He may not be as fast as you on the uptake sometimes, but he wants to get there. Uh, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. So again, he's still teaching women from my vantage point, from what I'm trying to share with us. Um, he's telling us all how to get along, but he's also especially teaching women who have a place that's very uh, much the embodiment of some of the metaphors we're having earlier. Verse 9 says, uh, or verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy. Well, that's understanding. That is understanding. Um, this is means discernment. Fear of the Lord, we saw in chapter 1, is just the beginning of wisdom. If you get that down, you'll break through eventually to the place where perfect love casts out fear and you'll get to know God. When you get to know God, you have discernment to be able to navigate boldly. God, God made it such that, yes, it was a broken world. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we have to come to terms with that. But he wants us to get strong. He wants us to stand up. He wants us to square our shoulders. And he wants us to look at the light, at the world around us with his eyes, with his viewpoint, so that we can see what's going on and join him. We become co-laborers with Christ now. This is a big deal because now we're in the yoke with him. Take my yoke. We're right there working together with him. And women, on one sense, who are trying to be helpers in a broken world, well, they need to be careful not to, it's sort of like that smoking flax and that bruised reed. He didn't quench the one, he didn't break the other, right? So it's telling us that the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom, but you understand that the knowledge of holy, that's understanding. If thou be wise, and he's telling us the truth here, fellas, if you're going to be wise... You're going to be wise for yourself because nobody's going to applaud you for it. The world's no friend of grace. It's going to be very few and far between people who are going to say you're getting it right. If you're going to be wise, you're going to be wise for yourself. But if you be a scorner, you're going to bear that alone, too. So don't think there's any difference here. You're going to bear the brunt of that choice because that's what it comes down to. If there's a, if there's a, a center verse here, this is it. It's, it's a lonely road. Being a man. It's a lonely road being a man, whether you're righteous or whether you're not righteous, if you're unrighteous. Why? Because God made us to have fellowship with him. And the only way we're going to be able to enjoy this life at all is to have fellowship with him. He makes everything else sacred and sanctified and good. And suddenly there's no secular and sacred. Everything's sacred because we have a relationship with him. If you're going to be a wise man, you're going to have, be wise for yourself. You're going to know that it's the right thing, and you're going to help everybody around you by doing it. He says, but if you scorn, well, you're going to, that, uh, thou alone shall bear it. He says, a foolish woman, because that's the choice you have, okay? You're going to either go for purpose or you're going to go for pleasure. He says, listen, a foolish woman, she is clamorous. The word for clamorous is interesting. It literally means to murmur, to growl, to roar, to cry aloud, to mourn, to rage. Aren't those interesting words? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm always thinking it's a woman who's like shouting loud and talking loud and being embarrassing. But this, this is a different word. I, maybe it means that somewhere else. It means to be troubled, to be disquieted, to be in an uproar. 
He says, listen, it's the whole idea, you know, you just don't want the trouble of having that kind of a marriage from a male's perspective any more than a woman wants a fool or a wicked man as a husband. And he's saying, listen, there's a way through here. There's only one way through here. It could be a calamity. Yeah, I like it. Again, he goes on, he says, she is simple. And that word literally means uh, simplicity, but it also has the idea of naivety. Now, when I read that, I personally, you know, going through these things and always wondering, is there any other connective that I can get get there with? You know, what, what else can I bring to bear on this? And 2 Timothy 3, 6 came to my mind, for of this sort are they which creep into houses, these are wicked men. It says they are the people who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lust. Remember that? Silly women. You ever thought about the words silly women? The word literally means little women, women who have never allowed themselves to grow up, I guess, but they don't have any depth. And depth and wisdom in women is different than wisdom in men on many levels. And I think we've just seen some of that. She can facilitate. She can build. She can undertake. She can know her husband and like him. Um, She can be um, a facilitator of what God's trying to do with her husband through prayers. She carries a veil in 1 Corinthians 11 over her head when there was a time when that was embarrassing not to, that she might have power on her head because of the angels, which in my mind means she needs to be righteous with the Lord. So she prays. She's got that back up by the angels because she's doing what is obedient. Things to ponder, folks. Things to ponder. She is simple and she knows nothing. Isn't that a powerful word? She knoweth nothing. And literally, the word knoweth is the same word as teaching him earlier, and I said it had to do with intimacy. She will never know intimacy of face-to-face, into-me-see kind of intimacy, as some have said, because she has squandered the, the opportunity. As was a warning from the Shulamite who said, don't awaken love before it's time. Uh, And she warned her girlfriends about that. Verse 14 says, For she sitteth at the door of her house, not in her house, on a seat in the high places of the city. In other words, now she's not in the darkness. She's gotten to the place where she's full on out there saying, I don't care what people think anymore. Uh, That sounds a little bit more like the days of Isaiah 3, maybe the days of 2020, (laughs) okay, 2022, uh, because there's a lot of this aggressiveness that has occurred, and she's willing to be boisterous on the streets. It says she calls right out to the strangers or to the passengers who go right on their ways. And the word right, I I really had to read that several times before I opened it up and looked at it. (laughs) I wanted to look behind it. It means righteously. They're going righteously on their way. You know, a lot of times a guy is uh, just kind of going along, and then he finds one girl somewhere along the line, and it, it can mess him up, okay? That's, maybe they were a little bit more forward. I know that boys today uh, have girls that are 13, 14. They're a lot older than the 13 and 14-year-old boy. They grab their hand, they give them a kiss, and the boys are blown away. And they're so short-circuited, they go to their games and they say, I'm going to stay away from those girls because that freaked me out. I mean, I was, because they didn't even have to work up any, you know, slow and go, you know, hold her hand. That was a big deal back in our day, you know. It was just like just getting the nerve to say, hey, we want to go to the, you know, the dance or whatever you did. And we had to work up that. But not now. The girls are plunging forward and asking the boys. The boys are freaking out and we're... We're, therefore, we're raising a lot of soy boys, as they say, uh, guys who don't have uh, uh, alpha sense in them. Uh, and it's scary what the outcome will be in our country. <laughs> um, boys are not as strong as they once were. That's true because of all of the media that's out there. And uh, all things are short-circuited, and it can be a problem. It says, a foolish woman, clamorous, knoweth nothing. She sitteth at the door in the high places. She calls to the passengers. In, uh, in meaning passerbys in verse 15, who go righteously on their way. They're just going along. And it says, she will say, whoever is simple, let him turn in hither. Very interesting because it's naive. If you're naive, I'll teach you a thing or two. And the boys are just going right after. You saw that in chapter 7. He goes down by her side of the street. And next thing you know, he doesn't know it's for his life. And he goes into her house. Verse um, 
Verse 16 says, Whosoever is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that really wanteth understanding, she saith to him. And it's interesting, the word does mean lacks understanding, but the implication is he wants some. So want is good, but it's lax. So she's going to change her tone to him. Anybody who's naive, turn in here to the simpleton. But to the guy who lacks understanding, she saith to him, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Three things, secret, sweet, and pleasant. So you see where I got my thoughts? You can go through the world with purpose or with pleasure. She's promising pleasure is what will make everything different. Verse 10, 18, it, he winds it down and he says, but he, neither one, but he especially, who wanted wisdom, he knoweth not that the dead are there. Do you know who the dead are? It's not just dead people. It's people with a carterized heart. The Bible talks about callous, right? Hot iron, you know, reprobate. They're there. They live in that neighborhood. Everything you see depicted in uh, the entertainments of our day. Kids in teen years. Disney with boys kissing boys sometimes. Things like that. We're in a day. They're depicting the dead as if that's normalcy. The Bible says, but he knoweth not that the dead are there. He doesn't know it's going to carterize his heart. And that her guests are in the depths of hell. Because she's not one woman. She's any woman that chose that path. So she's every age. There's one of those. And there are all kinds of simpletons and all kinds of guys lacking understanding. And we all start out vulnerable. This is why we need parents. Not the government. This is why we need clarity and discipline as we come along. Because it teaches us that there is a consequence for foolishness. To not listen to your conscience is a problem. And God has given us a conscience, thankfully. When you think of these things, read back over them. You'll see two things. Jesus is wisdom. He's made a perfect way to get from here to home. If you want to com complete the whole picture, you know that the Bible does tell us in a couple of places. Uh, Ecclesiastes, for instance, I think it's chapter 8. It says, live joyfully with the wife of your youth. Remember that? Live joyfully. And literally, when we went through our Ecclesiastes study, we know that what it literally had the idea of is it had the idea of see. Not live joyfully. It's not about joy. It had to do with see with the wife of your youth so that you could be a team and you could, in many ways, make a difference in the world in which you live together. And therein is, well, that's your purpose. That's your purpose, to live together shoulder to shoulder. And I connect that to 2 Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 9. It says, husbands, love your wives, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Again, seeing and the idea of, uh, and give honor to the wife as under the weaker vessel. And it says, as join heirs together of the grace of life. See how powerful that is? God gave us wisdom, both males and females, little nuances in the way that that's expressed but we try to figure out how to do things God's way. And if we all kind of look to the Lord and say, where's my plumb line? We can write ourselves. And I think that's a lesson to be taken from all of this. It's a hard thing to go back and forth between, you know, wisdom personified in one way and other ways. But hopefully we've been able to utilize some of this time together to make some sense of it. Thanks for listening. All right. With that 